When you're 85, you're not going to look back and say, man, I'm so happy I stayed at that safe job that didn't allow me to become the best version that I wanted to be. There's so much potential in you that you don't even realize that is out there that you need to go chase and find and become. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. We recently asked listeners if there were any must-have questions we should ask founders. One that came up was, how do you know when taking a risk will pay off? In this episode, I explore that with Rick Elmore, founder of Simply Noted, a technology company with a unique offering, automated, handwritten notes. You heard me right. Rick shares his journey from being a driven football player to starting his robotics business with no technical expertise. After years in corporate sales jobs, Rick tapped into his competitive nature and made a handshake deal to start Simply Noted. He bootstrapped it for five years without investors, teaching himself software development, patents, supply chain, and more through relentless curiosity. Rick gives an inside look at the tough decisions around funding technology versus marketing, avoiding paths that don't align with his values, and building company culture rooted in trust. While extremely challenging, Rick reflects on how he's grown more in the last few years as an entrepreneur than he could have in 25 corporate careers. He leaves founders with advice on knowing your priorities, taking smart risks, and bringing teams along to accomplish their dreams too. Tune in to hear his unconventional path and hard-earned wisdom. All right, joining us virtually today, we've got Rick Elmore, founder and CEO of Simply Noted. Thank you so much for making time for us today. It's great to be here, and I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. So you're in the, the Phoenix area today, right? Yes, Tempe, Arizona. That's not where not where things started for you. You, you came from Southern California? Yeah. So actually, yesterday was my birthday. And well, happy birthday. Thank you. And this is a very interesting, special birthday because I was in California for the first 18 years of my life. I grew up in uh, Simi Valley in Ventura County, just north of L.A., and then we got scholarships to play football at the University of Arizona. And that's a whole long, different story. But I was in California for 18 years. I turned 36 yesterday. So I've been in Arizona officially 18 years. So kind of more of an Arizonian now. <laughs> My oldest is getting ready to start taking driver's ed and he'll be getting his learner's permit. And it dawned on me, I'm, I'm 42, coming up on 43. And I kept thinking, okay, 16, I've been driving more than half of my life. I've been driving more of my life than I haven't been driving. And so now you're on the upswing with your, you've lived more of your life in uh, in Arizona than you have California. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird thing. I don't really feel old, but me and my wife, you know, we we're talking about our futures. We're like, oh, when we're in our 40s and our 50s, I've been with my wife for like, actually 18 years since my first year in college. And we're like, oh my gosh, that is so close. We're not that far from that anymore. My wife's two years older than me. It's just weird, you know, time goes so fast, especially once you get out of college. It's like literally just like years seem like days or weeks. It just goes really quick. I'm right there with you. Well, football is a big part of what took you to Arizona, but I want to talk more about you as a kid. I, I assume that football was a part of your life from a very early age. What was Rick like as a kid? Yeah. So as you get older, you start really learning about, you know, why you are the way you are and who you are and what made you that way. Grew up in a lower middle-class family, blue collar. Parents were phenomenal. I could not have asked for a better set of parents growing up. I had my childhood tragedy when I was seven. My father passed away when I was seven. So that was like the cataclysmic 
massive change in my life at a very early age. But I was very lucky. My mom actually married my football coach and he coached me for 10 years from nine until basically 19. He's still here. He watches our kids every day, but he's just a phenomenal person. But yeah, I was, um, I don't know, I'd say I was like your typical hardworking, always wanted to play sports. I played everything. I don't know if that was because of, you know, my childhood tragedy. I just wanted to stay busy, but um, I just needed to do things. I had this energy, couldn't sit in the classroom. I skateboarded, BMX, raced, uh, played basketball year round outside of football. I played the the summer in winter league and then I played football in the fall, played soccer, played every sport. But yeah, I was just super busy. I have a twin brother and that was awesome. You're basically like a built-in best friend and we did everything together. I think kind of when we got more to like the middle school, high school, we kind of, he had his friends. I had my friends, but we always played sports together. Very supporting family. Couldn't have asked for a better situation. Just, yeah, very lucky for the the journey I've, I've had from an early age to where I am today. You just said BMX and skateboarding as if football isn't uh, <laughs> injury inducing enough. Yeah, I got hurt more skateboarding than I ever did in football. I'll tell you that. I imagine you probably had some ER visits. Yeah, so I actually can still 360 flip, kick flip, heel flip, burial flip, and I'm 36, and I have, I mean, it's just weird. I can still do a, a ghost Dang, flip. Dude. I mean, it's just like if you, I did it for a long time, and it's kind of like riding a bike. Like once you do it a few times, you kind of get the feel back. I remember I was just always incredibly competitive. I don't know what drove it or drove it. I was a middle child, and my older brother wasn't super competitive, so he wasn't like coming down on me. If anything, he was always like supporting and he was more a musician and he kind of like was our biggest fans. But yeah, BMX, like I always remembered, like, you know, you start at the gate. I always wanted to get on the inside first position so you can get that turn real quick. And I would always go as hard as I could. And the parents like started asking my mom to like stop letting me do it because I would cause all these crashes because I was <laughs> just like, I would go so hard and like, I don't care. And I was just like, after like the third crash, I was like, you're done. Like, stop doing this. Like, you're going to get hurt. People are getting hurt. Like, stop doing it. But I'm just super competitive. And I, and I think, I don't know, maybe it had to do with my dad passing away. I don't know. But uh, I just remember being young. I just wanted to do things with my body, be physically active, um, always been extremely driven. And I think the drive comes from my mom because my mom's always done everything, no matter what, how hard things have ever gotten. She's worked multiple jobs. Her story from a young childhood inspired me because it could have been she could have went off the deep end really easily because there's some issue, you know, she, I mean, we all have our own stories, but she's inspired me. She's made me want to be a good person, a better person, take care of our family, take what she did and, and my stepdad and, and do something better. And for our kids, you know, basically raise the bar. So yeah, I just feel very fortunate. You mentioned your, your twin brother, you were more athletic, although it sounds like he played sports and he was more artistic. Is that a fair way to look at it? My older brother was more of a musician. My twin brother, I mean, he played sports, got a scholarship to the University of Arizona, but he, I mean, he was just a big guy. He didn't have like the passion I had for sports. I wanted to be in the NFL. Like I do at like seventh grade, like that's what I wanted to do. And he kind of, you know, he had friends and he liked playing games and he just like doing different things. He was still a great football player, but to go to the elite level. And I mean, I was never like elite, but like to be like elite top 1%, like you just have to be so obsessed. You have to be obsessed with everything. And you, you pay attention to these, you know, the Tiger Woods, the Kobe Bryant's, LeBron James, just the people who are just at the top, the, the Tom Brady's, it's their life. And, you know, what I loved about football was hitting people, 
lifting weights and competing. But like there was a lot of things I didn't like about football, which probably held me back from being more successful than I was. But um, my older brother was a musician. He never really played sports. And my twin brother played sports because we all played sports, really. Got it. So this competitive nature, this drive to excel, how did that translate to the classroom? <laughs> so I, always, I don't Is this a video podcast or is this only audio? Because I won't do <laughs> what, my, what my coaches told me. Is this a video podcast? It's an audio first. Well, I'll do it. I'll show you. So I had my college football coaches and this is, I was pre NIL, you know, so, and I really did feel like getting a scholarship was a privilege. Like I felt like just going and playing for the University of Arizona was an incredible privilege. It wasn't a right. Having school paid for, giving me a scholarship check every month, living my dream, playing in front of millions of people every single weekend. That was a privilege. And I know we were living in a different world, but my coaches, (laughs) they always used to say that. That school's number one and football's number two. Since you guys can't see this, when they say school is number one, they hold up two fingers. And when they say football is number two, they hold up one finger. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Clearly, the administration in the the athletic department had had slightly different... uh, It was position coaches. They would do that. You know, we still had really great tutors. We had like full-time tutors. I mean, it was their mission to make sure that we were focused on school. And um, they were. We spent a lot of time with them. We were two hours a day in study hall, three hours on Sunday. Tanner remembers this. I know we both know Tanner, but we spent a lot of time. I mean, it was a big commitment. But I, I knew at an early age, and we all. I mean, I don't know if this is an entrepreneur thing or business owner thing. Like you just knew, know you're built different. Like you got to be busy. You got to be doing something. And I knew I wanted to be in business someday, but I just. I don't know. School was more like memorization. It wasn't like creative. It wasn't problem solving. It was more like studied this glossary, multiple choice tests. And I hated that. And for me, I wanted to create, I wanted to build, I wanted to achieve, I wanted to compete, I wanted to do big picture stuff. I know you got to go through that. And and education is, you know, incredibly important. It's a a part of the process. But I just know I wanted to do not the memorization. I wanted to do the building, the going out, the hunting, the closing, that type of stuff. What did you study in school? So (laughs) I was a triple minor in my undergrad it was interdisciplinary studies, you know, but basically my undergrad was just a stepping stone to go to the NFL. But I knew I wanted to be a business owner someday. So I went back and did my MBA full-time evening program in 2017. So when I was 30, actually 29, I was doing my MBA. I had my first kid. I did two Ironmans that year at a full-time job. And I was launching my part-time like side hustle business, Simply Noted. So it was an incredibly crazy uh, year of my life. Man. So let's go back to just right after college real quick. So that dream of playing in the NFL came true and you went from sunny and warm Arizona to maybe not Buffalo cold, but one of the coldest uh, (laughs) places you can play pro football, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Talk me through that. Talk me through like the the emotional aspect of that. Was that just this incredible feeling that you finally got to do what you knew you wanted to do starting at age seven? I think everybody in their life has these outer body experiences or you're just so in the moment or it's just so surreal. And I remember I got drafted. I mean, it was a six round draft pick. It wasn't super high, but I got drafted to the, the Green Bay Packers in 2011. And it was just one of the most amazing days of my life. It was 15 years, 16 years, 17 years of envisioning where you, where you want to go and working at it every single day. 
And it was just incredible. I can't explain it. That doesn't mean my experience in the NFL was incredible. <laughs> it was extremely hard. I, you know, I got to enjoy it for a night. I remember it was a lockout year and there was no off season. So I remember Coach Kevin Green, the late Kevin Green, he passed away. He was, you know, my linebacker coach there, Hall of Fame, outside linebacker, one of the best pass rushers in the, in the NFL's history. <laughs> he just told me, he's like, hey, get ready. Like, I'm not going to be able to talk to you, coach you, do anything. And I was converting from a 4-3, hands down, defensive end to a stand-up, outside 3-4 linebacker and Don Capers, incredibly complicated defense. He's like, good luck. Like, he just like, hey, we're happy to have you, but get ready, talk to Clay, because Clay Matthews was playing there. And he was training in Westlake when I was in California, which is like 30 minutes. But he's like, get with Clay, talk to him, get ready. I can't talk to you, but like, hold on. It's going to be crazy. And yeah, it was three years. I was in the NFL for three years. Journeyman career, you know, bounced around. I actually, at yeah, Green Bay, Cleveland, you know, I grew up in California, perfect weather, Arizona, hot weather. And then I wouldn't say it was miserable, but when you don't see the sun for three months, that seasonal effectiveness disorder, sad, whatever, it's a real thing. It's a real thing, especially when you grow up in the like sunny weather. So remember like my mom would call, I'm like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, I don't know, I crap. You know, it's just like, I'm tired all the time. I'm like, I'm 23 in the, my peak prime shape. And she's like, yeah, it's probably just the weather. <laughs> right. So yeah, it was, it was weird. And I, I was like a 250 pound guy from California and Arizona and going and pra- we practice outside because our games were outside and I would put on like nine layers and like on film, I looked like I weighed like 290 and all these guys would just laugh. I'm like, look at this California boy. Like he can't handle it. Was, it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of cool memories, but yeah. NFL three years, that was a, a very hard chapter of my life. We talked about this a little bit when we did our kind of initial get to know you conversation a few weeks ago. You got married in there too, right? Yeah, I married my college uh, sweetheart. I met her like three months into college. So I had a high school girlfriend. Yeah, I don't know if this is a, a, a twin thing, but I like relationships. I had a high school girlfriend for all four years that we broke up like three months in. And then I met my wife now like a month later and I've been with her ever since. So yeah. We dated for seven years, got engaged, married a year later, had kids, you know, a year or two later, been together for, yeah, 17, 18 years. Yeah. So you're trying to get your NFL career going. You're bouncing around the country. Like you said, you played for a number of different teams. That's got to be hard on a relationship. She was an athlete. She got it. So it really wasn't. She, my wife, I always say she's more decorated of a, an athlete than me. She won two national championships, was a four-year starter at the University of Arizona. She played softball. She's in multiple Hall of Fames. She's like in the Tucson, Arizona Sports Hall of Fame, Gatorade Player of the Year a couple of times in high school, played professional softball. So she got that commitment in, in what it took to be successful at a high level as an athlete. So I think that's one of the reasons our relationship works so well. Um, the ways that we need to be the same, we're very compatible. And the ways like where I'm not good, she's great. Like I'm more of like an introvert behind the scenes. I just want to grind type of person. And my wife is extremely opposite. She's extremely extrovert, wants to be, you know, make friends, make sure everyone's happy. So yeah, I think we just, we got lucky. We met so early on and you know, you grow through what you go through. There's been a lot of ups and downs. Same thing in life and business. You you got to go through challenges to grow. But we've gone through moving all over the country, deaths in the family, different jobs, having kids, and going through all of it, you go through it together. And uh, a lot of people, when you hit hardships, you separate. And I think that's an early 
sign. And even if it's a relationship or a business relationship, go through a thing, a hard to or hard thing once or twice and see how you guys handle it together. And that may be a good predictor for success in the future. I think that's a, that's a good word right there. So after the NFL period was over, you went back and got your MBA. Where'd you go get that degree? The University of Arizona, Eller Business School. So I wrote my senior high school, whatever, entrance. I want to get my MBA and uh, I felt good to go back and do it. I, I still have a couple of classes left because I, I left to start Simply Noted. But I, I credit the University of Arizona for where I am today. Um, number one, they gave me an opportunity to play football, but I was six years, seven years into my corporate career. And I was like, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. I need to go and try something different. And six months into my MBA, you know, I was trying everything. That's what you got to do in your 20s. You got to try everything. You're going to fail at everything. Some things are going to work. Some things are going to stick. And that was one thing I was good at. I was consistently good at just talking to new people, asking different questions, trying new things and seeing what stuck. But six months into my program, we had like a project, a research project, and there was this company called Bond, and they did robotic handwritten notes. I just was so fascinated with the idea. But I thought they were doing a terrible job because they were focusing on the wedding market, which if you're a business, what do you need as a business? Consistent revenue. I was like, why would you go after one-time clients and extremely stressed out clients that are going to change their mind constantly? You know, So yeah, just ran with an idea and what was it? Almost... Yeah, six years ago. And here we are. <laughs> Time does fly. Yeah. At some point outside of playing football, were you working in the corporate world before getting your MBA? Yeah, I worked at Stryker. So I was the typical athlete that went to Stryker. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to play football until I was 30. I honestly thought I could. I thought my in my abilities, I was good enough to be that guy who had a seven, eight year career, whatever it was. But got done after three years. I had some like futures contract with the Colts, but there's nothing was guaranteed. I was like, I'm not going to go through this for a year. My hamstring feels like it's going to blow. My knee is like one bad hit from going out. And then I had a contract in Canada. And I was like, I'm not going to go risk my health for 90 grand. No idea what I wanted to do because I thought I was going to make all this money and open up a gym and just, you know, sail off into the sunset and enjoy my life. But obviously that didn't happen. So I just started calling people. And this is all I was just talking about in your 20s. You just got to talk to people, ask, turn over stones and try things. And I just started calling people who transitioned from sports. And at least from the outside looking in, I thought they were like doing good. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? You like it? How'd you do it? Where'd you get started? Who'd you talk to? And Dane Krog said, I think that was actually somebody, a part of Tanner's class. I just always respected. He was really nice. And he was in medical sales. So I talked to him. He just kind of pointed me in the direction. We, this is how you should do it. I did it. I got a job at Stryker. I was selling spine implants to surgical doctor or like neurosurgeons, which is really weird. I was like 25 years old telling this neurosurgeon how to do a surgery. And I was like six months on the job and he was like 15 years into his career. So I always thought that was like really weird. Were you actually in the OR when they're doing these surgeries? Yeah, I was like six feet. I mean, I had to stand back for like sterilization reasons, but I was six feet with a laser pointer. Hey, like if you're doing this incision, use this tool, grab that implant. If you're going to use that implant, you got to use the screw. I was like, yeah, product expert. Basically, I wasn't telling them how to do the surgery, but I was just like a product expert six months onto the job. Was that terrifying? Like your very first surgery that you were in, you, you were totally confident. That's why Stryker loves athletes. They like people when 
you get up to the plate, you don't buckle under pressure. It is high pressure. A lot of we worked with reps that would get in there and they wouldn't say anything. Like you have to have confidence, you have to be poised. There are surgeries. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day about one of our doctors, a scoliosis case, so which is like a really bad curvature in your spine. One of the doctors accidentally hit a vein or an artery in the back just pooled with blood. Like literally it was just pooling and this person was dying on the table. And just watching this doctor, this doctor staying cool, calm, the anesthesiologist, like for an hour, I'm standing there like, oh my God, this person's going to die on the table. And like watch this doctor and this anesthesiologist like calmly save this person's life. But they do that routinely every single day. But if you're in that situation, some people are going to step out and fold. I was just like, wow, this is fascinating. Watch these people perform under pressure. Like that's what you need to do at a high level is perform under pressure. And a lot of these athletes that are division one or or professional, they have that experience of performing under pressure. And I think that's why I was just a natural fit. This topic has come up a number of times and we've interviewed some other college athletes and it's so true. People that have played at that level, there's just something different. There's something mentally different. And in my business, we have a, a couple of college athletes as well. And they're, they're some of our absolute best people because they've got the whatever it takes mentality. They've got the all about the team mentality and it's so important. So for people that are listening, if you get a resume that comes across your desk and you see that they were a, a college athlete or if they played at the pro level, I would look at that one really, really hard. So did you like the job at Stryker? I loved what I was doing. I thought it was, it was a fascinating career. I felt like I could have did it for a career. I felt like it was fun, worked with interesting people, had an important job. But what I just didn't like was the corporate aspect. I think if you were at the right place, I think it could be a really good situation for most people. But I don't know. I was early in my career as a sales guy. You know how corporations treat salespeople like they're the everything's their fault. They're the first first people to get cut. So, anyways, I went. I went back after six years of perform. I mean, I was top one percent or top five sales rep for six straight years. Literally top performer. You know, when you ask for help, they don't give you help. They cut your pay every single year, make you just go chase your tail. Don't support your growth. You know, I asked my last year, I asked like, hey, like, I'm literally like your top rep in this division. Help me grow. Can I get an associate rep so they can help me manage some of these smaller accounts so I can go get bigger accounts? Or like, no, nah, if you want to do that, we'll have to split your territory. You know, I'm just like, yeah, not doing this. So, and I grew up in a, a locker room. I need a team. You know, I was on a, a field with 11 people. And if I didn't do my job, I let 10 people down, right? And I like playing with those types of people, people that we're going to suit up. And when we go out there, it's war. And we're going to fight. And we're going to do everything that we can do to win. And I know it's really hard to find that in the real world because it's just not like that. But I'm trying to build that here at Simply Noted. We come here. We all have a job. If we don't do our job. We're letting each other down. We all can count on each other. We all can trust each other. But I mean, we're a small team. We're 11 people. It's not like it's a corporation of 45,000 people, which I know that's a, a different beast. Yeah, I just like the team, locker room, trust, family type of atmosphere, not the backstabbing culture of corporate. <laughs> so where did you go after Stryker? Went to a strawman. So Stryker was a top medical company for like the orthopedic side. And then I went to like the dental side and Strawman was like the number one dental company in the world. Good company, had a lot of fun over there. We launched a product out of out of Brazil, and 
like zero dollars, like zero revenue when we came in. I was there for three years and we did like four and a half million in my territory selling a cheap knockoff product. And I had no idea what it was. I, I just, the manager I knew was a good friend from college. He's like, come over here. It's a great opportunity. And I was like, great, you know, I'll do something different. Yeah, it was fun. I had a lot of fun, but uh, I just saw the same thing happening. I was like, man, I'm not, unless I want to, I mean, this is another thing for corporate. Like I never wanted to work the ladder and become like the VP where I'm traveling all the time. But a lot of these managers, they're divorced. They never see their kids. My parents, maybe this is why I have an inkling to not like corporate. My parents went to every practice, every game. They were at everything. And I wanted to do that for my kids. And I saw in order to make more money and go up in your career, you had to travel more, miss more things. And that, and that was something I never wanted to do either. So that's why I was like, you know what? This isn't going to be my 30-year career. I'm going to go back and do something different and try my MBA and see if that helps. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Did you enjoy the classes? Was there truly like a, a desire, like, I really want to get in, I really want to learn? Or was it more of like, I think I need this in order to get to the next level? So I was the first person to go to college in my family. So I think there's a lot that we don't know. And that's what I feel this way. It's like, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And when I was younger, I didn't realize I didn't know that much. I thought I knew a lot. And all I knew is I had to do something different. And what I think the MBA program is good for is introducing you to ideas about business. If it's, if it's marketing, if it's finance, if it's spreadsheets, you know, I, I mean, I feel like I became like an Excel sheet guru master during my Excel program or my MBA Excel program. When I was at my Excel program. I think what the MBA does, it dips your toe in every subject. And I think that's what it's supposed to do is to introduce you to all these different ideas of like senior level business. And then you find where you'd like to go. But what it did for me was it introduced me to everything. I didn't know all that stuff, but it, it just lit the fire even more under my tail that I could be an entrepreneur. Like, oh, like this guy runs a business. I talked to him. This is what he's good at. Like, oh, this guy talks. I talked to him. He owns a business. This is what he's good at. I can own a business because this is what I'm good at. There's just different things we all can bring to the table. You don't have to be a marketing professional to open a business. Like, you don't have to be a finance professional to open a business. You just have to become really good at something that you can market that is valuable to a client that you can sell and then put the pieces together as you keep going. If you wait to try to figure it all out, you'll never get it off the ground. I was good at sales and marketing. Like I can figure out a way to position a product and give a presentation, close and deliver. But there's so much more to that. Like I had to do coding, engineering, finance, development, all this different stuff. I had no idea that I was ever going to have to do, but you just figure it out as you go. What classes did you enjoy in your MBA program? I thought finance, you know, even though it was the hardest, the hardest classes I ever did there, just what you can do with numbers and how you can, I wouldn't say manipulate, but how you can move stuff around and how that affects your P&L and your balance sheets. Like, I didn't even know anything about that. So I always thought that was the most fascinating because I just didn't even know anything about that. But to be honest with you, what I remember most about my MBA is the cohort and the relationships, the people you meet there, because you spend the most time with them and you spend like six weeks blitz. You don't even really have enough time to really sink into the information you're learning. Just my classmates, you know, my birthday yesterday, and like I had a bunch of people from my MBA, they reached out and it's just like, oh, how you doing? Like, oh, how's the job going? And, you know, congrats. Like a lot of people are moving up in the career. So it's like the relationships and, but that's like everything. 
life boils down to relationships. It's um, your network is your net worth. It was cool being around people that were motivated to learn and be better, if that makes sense. I kind of miss that, right? Because you're in the locker room, you're around those type A people that want it. They're driven, they're competitive. So that was like my thought. I was like, oh, I go to my MBA, it's people who want to get better. I'm going to be around, surround myself with people. And as you get older, you realize like, it's hard to find those people that are chasing the same things you're chasing because we have kids, we have different jobs, we're all doing different things. So you have to put yourself in the situations to find those people. So you alluded to it a minute ago, while you were in your program, you came across this wedding stationary business. Unpack this whole like revelation for us. I'm super interested in tech. I have drones, cameras, computers. I just, I like tinkering with electronics. I've done video editing, you know, just, I would say like semi, I'm not semi pro, whatever the, whatever the step below that is, you know, where you just kind of like get into it and have fun with it. But uh, six months in, I saw this company. I grew up in the generation that got handwritten notes, and I'm sure you did too. But like in sixth and seventh grade, we all got in trouble for passing handwritten notes, right? So like we all remember like the the power of it. It was just it's nostalgic. And I remember my coaches, uh, Coach Jim Harbaugh, when I left the 49ers, he sent me a handwritten note. It's a keepsake. You know, it just resonated. But I remember seeing this company. And what actually really set the idea on fire was I had a, a friend who's still a really good friend of mine. He showed me like you can mine data and get addresses based off demographics. And I never knew this. So I was like, man, if I can match a handwritten note with all this targeted data and the open rates 99.2% because I, I was in a marketing class and a professor was going through all the success rates in marketing. And he said handwritten notes have a 99.2% rate or open rate. I was like, 99.2% open rate, targeted data, like if I get in front of my targeted client 99% of the time, that's going to make me more successful. And I, I bought this really crappy pen plotter off of eBay. It came from China. I had to build it. We, it took me three months of like hand feeding this robot and write 500 notes to my target dental clients. Out of 500, I had like 28 doctors call me back like within four or five, six weeks. My monthly quota was 50 grand. And I sold like 280 grand in six weeks. Like my VP of sales was going absolutely nuts. For the first time, like my phone's ringing. People are calling me asking to like, so I was just like, oh my God, it works. Like my hypothesis was correct, right? So I was just like, this is it. My business is going on autopilot. I'm going to figure out a way to scale this. And it's been incredibly hard since that point. Incredibly hard. I had, I mean, is ignorance is bliss sometimes because it forces you to take the step without knowing. And taking the step sometimes for people is just the hardest first thing to do is just to take the first step. This is all customer funded, but we've invested like five and a half million dollars back into this business the last six years. But I didn't have that money. I didn't. I started on a ten thousand zero percent interest credit card. Didn't put money back in unless we sold. So the profits were reinvested. But um. I mean, I'm building robots. I have six pending patents, 400,000 people coming to our website every single month. You know, we have software integrations. We're doing full stack development. And I had no experience doing any of this, but I've had to do it as our products matured and our clients wanted new features. So I've been doing the same thing I did when I was 29. I asked people, I talked to them about my problems. Hey, this is what I got to do. How do you think I should solve this? Who should I talk to? Oh, thank you. Go to the next person. Hey, this person said, you can help me. This is what I got to do. How do you think I should solve this? Can you help? Oh, you can't. Who do you think I should talk to? Boom. <laughs> I've just been doing that for six years. And this football guy who has a sales background has started a robotics software industrial automation company that 
sends millions of handwritten notes a year, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people coming to the website, that has no reason to be here. But tenacity, will, drive, perseverance, that's going to take you so much further than talent ever will. It really will. So as far as your offering, companies come to you and say, hey, we need to run a sales campaign. And I say they they come to you, they talk to you. They're probably just doing this all online. They come, they upload a list, they type in a message, and then your robot writes a quote unquote handwritten note and you guys get them out the door and in the mailbox and they sit back and the phone rings. Is that kind of a good overview? We try to sell it as like a relationship building tool, not as a marketing tool, even though a lot of our clients use it for marketing because the open rate's so high. But yeah, I mean, that's, we've had a lot of people go out of business. We've had like three competitors go out of business in the last 12 months because everybody tries to be, make it a marketing tool. And, you know, as the economy changes, interest rates go up, you know, inflation, whatever, all time high, like that really makes your ROI all over the place. And if you're a marketer, if you're on a business, you don't like those drastic changes in your marketing campaigns. You like to see like little ups and downs in your ROI campaigns. You don't like to see the drastic changes. So we try to sell people like birthdays, holidays, anniversaries, thank you for your purchase, you know, that type of stuff, because that's going to lead to, and I'm a perfect example of this, that's going to lead to long-term growth, commitment, referrals, repeat business, lifetime value. The only way that we've been able to, to build our business is investing in evergreen strategies. So things that are going to continue to make you money and drive traffic and drive people to your website ongoing. Every single month, I'll pick up the phone. Any new customer who spends more than $100, I call them. And it's becoming an, really hard to do now. All of our, we invest heavy on, not in Google ads, no Facebook ads. And that's the first thing everybody does. Literally, every person at every business, they're going to jump straight into ads. We put everything, everything into PR and SEO. So we establish ourselves as a leader in the space, a thought leader, reviews, getting people to review us, and then SEO. Like we don't, I spend like nothing on ads. What I spend money on ads now is to protect my name. Simply noted, we have so many small little people trying to enter this space because they think, oh, this guy did it. We're going to do it and become rich. So all they do is they try to PPC, simply noted, so my budget goes to protecting Simply Noted on PPC. Real quick, PPC, pay-per-click for people who may not know. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's Google Ads. Yeah, Google Ads. So when you when you click in like Italian restaurant, those first three or four things you see is an ad. And all we invest now is in like trying to make sure that we're the first one up there when people are looking for Simply Noted. But yeah, we have taken the hardest path possible that nobody else has ever wanted to take because it's literally it will kill you. The stress kills you. And I think that's my background in athletics has prepared me for this. It has been incredibly hard making the right decision versus the easy decisions. And um, nobody else has built their own robot, you know, but I knew eventually I wanted to sell Simply Noted and nobody was going to want to buy a company at the scale that we're going to be at with a really bad, unreliable technology. So instead of investing money into just marketing and sales and growing marketing and sales and not our product. We spent three years building a robot that is better in every single way because we've tried everything else and it's going to be a lot easier for people to use and more enjoyable to use in production because the production side's a lot of work on it with what we do. I just feel like uh, you grow through what you go through 
you have to take the right course, not the easy course. You know, a lot of people are going to take the least path of resistance, but we're not. We're trekking our own path. We're trying to do things different. And it's been working for us. So let's talk about the path. This whole culmination of things came together. You saw success in your job that you had while you were getting your MBA. You saw this wedding invitation business and you decided you're going to go for it. What were those early days like? How were you spending your time? What were those those mountains that you you had to climb that were the, the really difficult parts just to get to day one? I'm going to tell anybody who's listening to this, the biggest mountain you'll ever have to climb, and we've all heard this a million times, it's what's between your ears. Doubts will kill more dreams than any problems you'll ever face. And I'm six years in, and I still deal with that. And just like, oh my God, this issue is insurmountable. It's going to kill us, right? If like, we have to do this, or how do we scale to that? Because we're self-funded. Like, we're not $5,000 problems anymore. It's like 50,000 is like a $5,000 bill. Consultants will come in like, oh, $75,000, right? Or a new project, 300 grand. And it's like, if you miss now, you're knocking yourself back years or you're closing your business. So I think in the early days, I was very ignorant. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, which played in my favor because if I knew what I knew now, I probably wouldn't have started this business because there's just so much money that has to go into engineering and robotics. But on the other side, I'm glad I did it. I've learned more in these last five years than I could do in two 40-year corporate careers. The personal growth that I've gone through, the confidence that I now have as a business person or an entrepreneur is unshakable. I know now, no matter what, I can wake up tomorrow and figure out a way to make money. I didn't know that when I was a, a sales rep at a corporate job. They put me in a box to go sell a product to a person. Now I know how to create a business. Now I know how to do SEO. I know how to do manage ads. Now I know how to do engineering. I know how to do file for patents. I know how to do sales and marketing automation. You know, we talked about Zapier earlier. I feel like that's literally anything. I know how to automate anything, probably not to the level of you guys, but like all these transferable skills. I could be a, a CMO at most small businesses, like with what I know. So just the confidence that you gain and you learn by having to figure it out on your own, I wouldn't trade that. I would not go back and say I want it easier because I feel better now than I did six years ago as a professional. When you set out and you had your your business plan, whether it was one that was actually formal and written or if it was just kind of in your head, was step one, build a robot? No. I came at year two when I got sick and tired of hearing businesses saying, hey, your robot, your there's a bunch of reasons why we did our the bigger orders were like, hey, if we're gonna spend this much money, like we want them to look more humanistic. So like the older technologies, there's a lot of patterns in the way it writes. The other issue was scaling with the off-the-shelf solutions that are out there were not reliable and it was too expensive. So they have these robots you can buy. The president uses them. It's like an auto pen, but they're like 12 grand. I was like, man, what happens if I need three of these or 300 of these? You'd call the the company that sells them. They won't call you back or be like, oh, I can, you need 20. Okay. I can give you like two right now and I'll try to get you two in like three months. And I was just like, that's not going to work. And then the machines that we did have when we needed parts, we'd call them and like, they'd say they'd send us parts. We never get parts. I was just like, how am I going to scale a business with a vendor that's expensive, unreliable, and they're like in their late 60s. They're going to go out of business in five years, right? It was really frustrating. Clients weren't happy with the the quality of the product. Also, like on our side, we weren't happy with the service we were getting from the people that provided the only machine in the world that would kind of do what we wanted it to do. 
we were very lucky. I micromanage our money. I'm super tight. We don't need it. We don't buy it. And we saved up, I mean, a, a decent amount of money because we knew that we possibly could do it. We went through 14 phase zeros with 14 different product development companies. You pay somebody like six grand to like 45 grand, literally asking them for their opinions. This is to build you a proof of concept? Yes, a proof of concept. So we just basically went to the first person Ask them for, it was the most expensive one. So they were just for like, they're like high level. Hey, we'll, we'll think about this for two weeks and give you like what we think you should do. That was like 50 something grand. Then we would take that guy's idea blueprint, take off his logo, take off his name, take off his pricing and go to the next company, next product design firm say, Hey, this is what we want it to do. This is what the other guy says. And then we get his idea. So they would just go back and forth. And we did that 14 times, like literally 14 times. We spent like over 150 grand just on opinions before we got started. This was, you said in your second year, did you have the revenue to support $150,000 in consultants? We saved, we saved. Yeah. So we had a few hundred thousand dollars in our account at the time. Okay. Yeah, I'm just saying from phase zero, opinion phase, blueprint to just prototype robot, it was like 330 grand. So we got six prototypes from, you know, because they would just get a bunch of parts. And then from there, go to production, you know, it's another half a million dollars because you have to go through injection molding, you have to buy a bulk. We spent over a million dollars just on our robotic technology. Our website, we spent like 600 grand. But again, it's as money came in, we just kept posting our here. How much does this guy need today? Oh, he needs six grand. How much does this guy need? Like, we, that's just how we've done it. And if you want it bad enough, he'll figure out a way. And I just, I, we really want this to work. <laughs> so we wouldn't keep pushing because it's incredibly expensive and hard. Yeah. And I mean, you did this without taking on investors and taking on debt. I mean, you've funded this all through cash flow. No f- loans, no debt, no investors. That's rare. That's congratulations. We're the only person in our space that is 100% owned. The CEO owns 100%. We've had three competitors go out in the last 12 months. One raised eight and a half million. One raised 12 million. And I, I don't know what the other one raised. All of them went out under. They all focus in the real estate industry. We all know what happened in the real estate in the last 18 months. So yeah, I know we probably could have grown faster and done this faster, but I had no idea where to go, what to do, what questions to ask. So going alone seemed like the only thing I could do in the early first few years. Plus I knew once we got off the ground where we're at now, like we'd have a lot more leverage in negotiating if we needed to raise money. So I was willing and I was young and dumb. You know, I was 29, had no idea what I was getting myself into. But um, I knew I was willing to kind of bet on myself. I've bet on myself for 15 years prior to that. I've done hard things prior to that. I've overcome the odds prior to that. Why can't I overcome this? And here we are. You talked earlier about how you're into technology. You've got cameras and drones and computers. And you mentioned all these things you've had to to learn yourself. You talked about having to write software. So you have sat behind the keyboard with the text editor and cranked out code that's in your in your system now, in your product. All I know how to do is, yeah, for software, all I know how to do is like basic UI, UX, front end stuff, run a debugging and then submit a report to our dev team. But I'm not doing any of the dev work on the back end. I have learned enough to be a competent project manager of everything that I do. So if it's electrical development, software development, mechanical engineering, database, backend engineering, or 
backend development, UI, UX, CSS, HTML, JavaScript, whatever it is, I am competent enough to manage that person and know what he's saying and understand it. And I think, and someone told me this in another podcast, is like, Rick, you're just a great business manager. I always just say, like, I do all these different things. He's like, yeah, like, this is why you're successful. You're a great business manager. Like, you know how to manage different parts of every aspect of your business. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. But it comes through drive. I want to know. I want to know. I don't want to be caught in a situation where ignorance is very expensive. If you don't know, you're going to pay somebody who does know who spent five years learning it. And I knew instead of paying that guy time and money, you're going to pay one or two ways with your time or your money. I would rather pay with my time and become better and go through the, the crap now and put all this pressure on me, right? Because I, what happens to coal under pressure, right? You turn into a diamond. I knew if I learned and, and cut through all the hard stuff now, by the time I'm in my late 30s, early 40s, I was going to be an incredibly capable business person that no matter whatever happened in this business, like I would go anywhere else and be fine because I would know a lot. So yeah, that's just what I do. Um, we're getting to a point now where I can't do that. You have to delegate to elevate, right? You have to, it's just really good helps, really expensive. So I'm trying to go with like the standard operating procedure route, build all these systems. So like I'm trying to go that route first and hire younger, younger, hungry, or motivated people versus seasoned people who are going to need equity packages. Take us back to getting your first customer. Do you remember that day? How did you find them? I knew people who were in business that had a problem that this could probably solve, right? So I go to them and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I think you need help with. This is how I think it would help you. Do you mind testing it? Just a soft ask, right? And ask three or four people, someone will buy it. And I think that's why it's really important for young people to get into a sales job because you learn, number one, relationships. You build out your network. You learn how to have tough conversations. You learn how to sell. You learn how to overcome objections. So and I know people bash sales jobs, but it's the best I think outside of starting your own business, I think sales and your in service, sales and service, right? I think in your 15 to 25 decade, it's incredibly important to, to have a 10 year period of that and then go specialize in this marketing or HR, right? But um, yeah, it was really easy. It doesn't matter. I'll start a company tomorrow. I'll have a customer in five days. Like it doesn't matter. I know where to go or I know where to go find the people who are having those problems that my product's solving. But that comes through everything that I've gone through. I've done the BNIs, I've done the EOs, I've done the Chamber of Commerce, I'm in Vistage now, I'm incredibly active, my wife's in a networking career, we go to, what is it coming up here in Scottsdale, the waste management, you know, the golf thing, again, your net work is your net worth, you can't sit behind your computer at your house, never talk to anybody and expect for people to like you, trust you, want to do business with you, you got to get out there, you got to meet with them, take them to dinner, spend time with them face to face, right, so... Yeah, it's finding your first customer is not hard if you put in all that time. Was it more satisfying closing that first deal when it was your own than when you were selling for other people? I was very nervous because somebody else is trying it and I got to see if they like it or if it works for them. Again, I bought a, I had a 10,000 zero percent interest credit card. I bought one of these robots. They let me put $6,000 down. That was incredibly a lot of money for me when I was 28, 29 years old. And I was like, crap, if this doesn't work, what am I going to do? But when you're in sales, you learn how to pivot and like, oh, that didn't work. Let's try this. Okay. Hey, let me do some free work over here to make up for that. It's like a relationship. It's back and forth. It can't be one-sided. I can't go to my customer and say, hey, it didn't work for you. Give me more money. Like, hey, 
let me put some time into this and see why it didn't work. Or, hey, let's try this and just pay for postage and I'll do my service for free. If you have those networks, people that believe in you, and that's built over time, building those networks and people. What is it? It takes a lifetime to build up your reputation and like a, a minute to destroy it. It's taken me 36 years to build up my reputation. If someone knows me, who's actually spent time with me or has been in my, my network, they know I'm extremely driven. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to push through. I'm going to overcome. I'm going to persevere. And I have an unwavering work ethic that won't be worn down. I'll wear people down until I'm successful. Like that's just, if you know me, that's why people believe in me. They're like, oh, he's gonna be fine. Even if it doesn't work, if he's having a hard month, he's gonna figure it out. That's what I've built over two decades. That's why I'm incredibly confident that no matter what business, what product, I can find people to believe in me, take a chance on me, or people refer me because they believe in me and uh, know that I won't let them down. When you started the business day one, was it just you or did you start it with other members of the team? Yeah, I had the, my buddy. He's actually outside my office right now. I, I played football with him. I've known him my whole life. Started playing football with him when I was eight. That was another thing. I had a $10,000 credit card. I paid 300 bucks to fly to California to go recruit my friend to come start this business with me. So best man at my wedding, you know, a groomsman at my wedding. Known him forever, like a brother. I talked him into quitting his job and coming out here and starting this. <laughs> there's days we're like, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing this? You know? But then there's other days we're like, how amazing is this? Childhood best friends running our own business, calling our own shots. It's amazing. But yeah, there's a lot of hard days. But yeah, he came out and started this with me. And he he shares a lot of the blunt force trauma that comes with owning a business. So it's really fun having somebody I've known for so long that I can lean into and share when I'm going through with somebody like that. So real quick, you've got no customers, no revenue. You've got a credit card with a $10,000 limit and it's down to 9,700 because you, you paid 300 for Because I knew it was going to work. Scott, I don't care if I start a marketing business tomorrow. I'll make that a $10 million business in five years. Like, I don't care if I go to a car dealership. I'll be the number one salesperson within five years. Like, I just, I'm that confident. There's a recipe. It's just, it's hard work. It's passion, it's drive, it's perseverance. Become the the most knowledgeable person in your industry. It's follow-up. It's a formula. It just is. It's just people will ignore parts of the formula. Why did he say yes? Because he knows who I am. He just knows. Like, it's just going to work. And I've known him for so long. I told him, it was like, hey, 100 days. We're going to build this company in 100 days. And it's been five years of a lot longer than that. But our vision has drastically changed versus where it was 2017. I'd love to hear more about that. What are the things that changed? We thought it was only going to take four machines for these really expensive, old, really outdated technologies to be a million dollar company. We were incredibly wrong. Uh, it took about 35. So that is about $400,000 in equipment to manage million dollars in business. And <laughs> that was a hard thing because the problem was like, oh, yeah, if we run these 16 hours a day six days a week at this rate, we can be at this, right? And we can only need this amount of people. Like, so our projections were way off because we just we had no idea what we were doing, getting the paper, print, postage, mailing equipment, just everything that went into it. And that was one of the issues with scaling. You know, it's like, we can't scale with this technology. So um, we were incredibly off there getting a space. We didn't know as you go to different volumes and like stamp affixings, envelope stuffing, all this stuff, like how big the equipment was. We have no experience in the mailing industry. So like we went from my bedroom office or my house office to like 1100 square foot facility. We're like, oh, this will be good until we're like 3 million. No, it's not. 
They went to a 3,000 square foot facility, a couple million in revenue. We're like, okay, like if we go to 10, we're going to need 15,000 square feet, which is probably going to be like 20,000 square feet. So it's just like, you just don't know until you get there. And then maybe bad, but I'd rather err on the lower side versus overcommit and overextend yourself. And now I'm paying $3,000 more a month in rent that I don't need or get the bigger piece of equipment and spend $1,800 a month on the lease more versus saving that. So it's like, we always were risk adverse. I'd rather err on the, the risk adverse side than that's that measure 14 times cut once the thing that we do with the, the engineers. So yeah, it's just, he knows, he knows how I am very driven nothing's going to stop me. Two football players starting this company, but we know what it's going to take to be successful. We've done it. Yeah. But it has been incredibly hard. What you just described of, okay, do we take on more than we need today and, and grow into it? Or do we you know, take on just what we need today, knowing that it may not last as long? Man, business is a constant daily game of taking calculated risks. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they pay big, sometimes you lose big, and sometimes you you break even. But man, that's one of the biggest struggles for me anyway. It's a huge struggle of, okay, how far do we go? How far do we extend ourselves? And and if I if I extend myself too much, that could have consequences. If I don't extend myself enough, it may inhibit growth. Is that a regular thing that you wrestle with too? Elon Musk said it. He's like, I think the big problem with business owners is wishful thinking or best case scenario thinking. We always get stuck in the idea of what if, like what if, but it's always like, oh, what if that contract lands or what if we get that price or what if whatever. We live in a very weird world now with all the social media and all these fake gurus and people looking like they're making all this and making it look easy. If it's easy, there's a problem. How it comes is how it goes. If it comes easy, it's going to go easy, right? So that's why I've always kind of had the mantra, like let's do it hard because people won't go through what we're going through. So yeah, I definitely do agree. It's it's a constant battle of making hard decisions. It's calculated risk. But I think, I don't know if it's a fear-based thing, but I'm always, as soon as I catch myself thinking about like, oh my God, this could be this and how big it's going to go. I have this conversation with my wife a lot, like best case scenario, but in business, it, best case scenario never happens. It never happens. So it's like when you catch yourself thinking, oh, best case scenario, so we should do this. Like That should be like, ding, 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 red flag, pump the brakes, write it down, come back to it. And that's something I've really gotten really good at the last couple of years is like kind of taking the compulsiveness away. Like We're compulsive beings. We want to do things. We get the idea. What I'll do is I'll write the email and then I won't send it. Or I'll write down the ideas and then I'll come back to it a couple of days later. It versus like, oh, great deal. That person's going to give me this piece of equipment at this, right? I won't respond. Like I won't like let my whatever temptation fall into it. So yeah, that's something. Um, the head case again, living between your your ears is one of the biggest battles. And we mentioned that when the beginning is that you have to struggle with to grow and be a business owner. Getting the robot built took longer and a lot more money than you expected it to. What have been some of the other biggest challenges that you guys have dealt with? Web development. So I have no technical background. I have no development background. My first website cost me $300 to build. And I was like, oh, this should get me going. You know, and that was basically just like a brochure website, you know, with an email sign up. And then my next website was $12,000. Didn't even work. And then our current version of our website has a 
with just development, just over 400 grand invested into it. But, you know, there's a lot more that's going into it. It's all the SEO, it's all the PR, because that helps, you know, drive traffic, increase rankings. I had no idea any of this. Like, you literally just, all I do is like on my way, like going to the gym, going to work, I listen to YouTube videos, I listen to podcasts, I pick up nuggets. I hope anybody listening to this, you just pick up one idea, this podcast is worth it. And then you write it down, you research it. I'm just obsessed with consuming and learning and staying ahead. But yeah, the website has been incredibly hard because like as we use APIs from like Square, as Square updates their API, we have to update it on our side. And if in code, and I'm sure you know this, a line of code breaks above, anything below it won't work, you know, unless like your developers are really good, which, you know, we're, you know, I'm paying for offshore development, which I haven't found like the best development, but for my budget, they're great. But um, yeah, the website is like our next focus is building like an enterprise level web app because now we're not investing all this money into the robots anymore. But um, web development, building something that's robust and reliable. I mean, that's what's keeping me up at night now. <laughs> that. Thinking about your day-to-day today versus your day-to-day in the first year or two, how much of what you were doing then are you still doing today? So I love every aspect of this business. Three years ago, I was managing the SEO. I hired two SEO companies and weren't really bad. So I took it away and I managed it and I learned. But I love doing the research, the blog planning, working with the VAs and doing the backlinking. But I mean, mostly I was doing it all. But mostly what I'm doing now is managing contracts and development project managing like our web development because I have to be highly involved there and then our engineering just making sure the robots are being built they're scaling and we're actually starting to sell our robots so I know who all the players are out there that are doing this so I'm reaching out to them seeing if they want to buy this technology but more big picture stuff but that doesn't mean I'm like taken away you know for some of the, the responsibilities I had three years ago you know I'll still talk to business accounts when they're onboarding making sure that all their in-depth questions are answered because I've managed or built everything so i can answer those questions and make sure if you know if we get that one opportunity to meet like i'm on that meeting and i can answer it the right way that they need to hear it delegate to elevate that's a real thing that's why i'm trying to build all these standard operating procedures before going the next route which is hiring seasoned talent which will require you know higher incomes and equity packages but to sell your business you have to have sops so i was like let's go this route first the harder route right which is to get organized write down everything and try that and train people because to sell your business, you got to kill the king. Like your business has to run without you. So I thought instead of hiring someone who's 45 or 50, who's done this, let me try doing this first. So yeah, it's uh, engineering development, larger contracts and kind of building SOPs. That's what I'm focused on right now. Of those things, what do you enjoy the most? I like sales. Like I like sales and marketing. In a perfect world, if I had a ton of money, I would I would be a chief revenue officer, like somebody who's in charge of growing. I just like the challenge. I like the hunting. I like the problem solving. I like the networking, the relationship building, problem solving. I don't enjoy development whatsoever. I think it's a language I just don't understand. I'm more sales and marketing guy. I've really enjoyed the engineering though. Engineering has been really fun seeing an idea come to life like a product that's been really cool in a perfect world you know if i had a, a ton of funding i'd be more focused on growing revenue partnerships you know that type of stuff looking back is there anything you would change professionally hindsight's 2020 you know you've made a lot of mistakes i could probably have saved a million dollars and a lot of the problems that <laughs> a lot of the problems 
or issues we had, but that's a part of the process. And you can't regret the things that you've gone through to get to where you are today. But it's just not realistic. I'm going to say, I wish I had a little bit more experience before starting and becoming an entrepreneur, but that's just not realistic. You have to be inexperienced before you have experience. But um, you know, I wish I would have did SEO a lot sooner. I wish I would have learned ads a lot sooner. Basic business stuff. I wish I would really would have understood like what it takes to build a website. We've invested, um, we've mismanaged and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on building a website. But everything else, no. You know, I would just say, understand what it takes to become an entrepreneur before you get into it. It's not just working for yourself. A lot of people are like, screw it, I'm going to go work for myself. You're going from a 40-hour-a-week job that you're probably really only working 30, like let's be honest, or even 20. And now you're going to be working 100 hours, managing everything, stressing about everything, and all the responsibility fit falls on you. So, And you really don't get it until you're in it. So someone could tell you, but like to really prepare you because you won't really get it until you go through it, but to prepare just to have that mentorship. And that's actually like something that when I want to do when I'm done is kind of like um, talk about that. I don't know if it's a podcast or something, but like help, especially athletes, because I really do believe athletes, they kind of fall off a cliff after sports. They just don't realize how well prepared they are for life after sport, like how to show you and prepare you and propel you to be successful or at least coach you what to prepare for. You talked earlier about your stepdad and your mom. They were there for every game. They were there for every practice. And we just talked about how being a business owner is, uh, it's not a nine to five kind of a job. You've got kids today. You've got a, a wife. What's it like keeping work and the, the personal life in check? So I know what my number one priority is, is my family. I don't care. Like I simply know it would be a $20 million a year company right now. If I treated it like how corporate management treats their corporate jobs out every night at the happy hour, networking with customers, gone all the time. I am home every single night, every single night, 4.30 or 5. I coach my son's basketball team and his football team. I'm doing a daddy-daughter dance this weekend. I rented like a pink Jeep and I'm putting like lights all over it. My number one priority, which is why I didn't continue my corporate career, is my family. Is 100% my family. There's this book, I'm trying to remember what it was, but like as you mature and as you grow, there's different stages of life. When you're kids, it's all about presents and gifts and birthdays because it's all about you. Then when you get into your 20s, it's about experiences and ego and all these things, right? These superficial things. And then there's the best stage of your life and it's about people, it's about relationships. And that's where you start feeling the most fulfilled. And there's just nothing better than being a dad. There's nothing better. There's nothing more fulfilling, happy. It's stressful, right? It's stressful being a father, right? You have to provide, you have to see them grow, go through bullying and all these things, right? Like it's stressful, but um, there's nothing better. But priorities, you always got to make sure they're number one. Don't put money as a priority. Don't put your business as a priority. Your health, any first time entrepreneur, you're going to go through some health issues. It's just, you're going to have a lot of stomach, you know, whatever. You're going to go through it. Sleep whatever it is. You're going to be more stressed than you've ever been. Don't take your health for granted, especially when you're going into your mid thirties and forties, your body changes. You got to sleep. You got to eat good. You got to cut out alcohol. You're going to put yourself behind the eight ball of success. If you're not taking care of just like those types of things. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they'll kill themselves. Like they'll ruin themselves or their chances for success by not just doing the easy things, sleeping, don't drink, don't do drugs, because those things exacerbate how you're feeling. If you're sad, it's going to make you feel more sad, right? If you're depressed, it's going to make you feel more depressed. If you're stressed, which me, I'm, you know, I'm a, usually a high stress person. I have one beer and it's just like, Woof! 
it turns off the control factor in my brain. When I feel something coming, I usually have the power to like shut it off. But when you drink or do drugs or whatever, like that shuts that off in your brain, at least for me. And I cut that out a long time ago. So know your priorities, take care of your health, and you're going to set yourself up a lot better to have higher chances of success versus just chasing money. Because money, you're going to take bigger risks, you're going to do dumber things. And there's nothing wrong with taking the slow process to success and have a 10% annual growth that's safe and that's going to endure years and decades versus quick wins that are going to put you in bad situations. Because if you grow too fast too, like it's going to force you to increase your bills too fast that you're not ready for. So we turn down things that we won't put ourselves in a bad situation for because it's going to force us to take on $14,000 in new equipment a month for a two-month job. So yeah, I know I'm rambling, but uh, you got to get your priorities straight. Family's number one. If that stuff's not good. You talked about saying no to things. Have there been temptations to go into a, a new market or, or add a new line of service or something like that? Direct mail. Yeah, we would be a $100 million company, but the margins on direct mail are so bad. And it's a race to the bottom. It's a red ocean. It's not blue ocean. I don't know if anybody's read that book, blue ocean, red ocean, it's a marketing. Like the only way you compete on direct mail is price. But I never wanted to be that. I wanted the differentiate product and service and having a, like a leveraged position to position a price, right? And why you should pay this. But yeah, we get RFPs all the time. This is like how, and I think it's unique to us, but it's not. And this is like that you have to be mentally tough. I'm like, I'll get really upset sometimes where like people will just like email us, like, here's an RFP, give us your lowest price. And that's what these vendors do is they'll just take a job and they'll shoot it out to everybody and they just look for the cheapest price. And we'll spend an hour quoting it because we've got to look up everything and make sure it's right. And I just, I'm not going to get there. I'm just not, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to build my product, my business, find my tribe, and I'm going to be happy with where I'm at. You got to keep the blinders on. Don't get shiny object syndrome. And also the niches are in the riches too. Like don't be everything to everybody. You can't scale that. Become great at one thing and everybody's going to know you for that one thing and everyone's going to come to you for that one thing. So when you need revenue, it's hard. When you need money and you're self-funded, it's hard. But um, it's discipline. It's just being disciplined. As an aside, we don't do RFPs at my business. Like we just period don't do them. I told myself when I started that we weren't going to do it. There are two times that I have broken my promise to myself and each time reminded myself why we don't do it. And like you, I don't want to be Walmart. I flat out don't want to be the lowest price. If I am, that's only by happenstance, but I'm with you. I would rather focus on adding high value and charging a price that reflects that high value. Yeah. And you want your customers to value your product, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, we all, you know what it's like, you know, the person who gives you a hundred dollars is a bigger headache than the person who gives you $10,000, right? Or whatever is your industry. If it's a $10,000 client versus a hundred thousand dollar client, like we have people who only buy on price and then they email you nonstop. And it's like, this is all the money I have. And if it doesn't work, I took the risk on you. And it's like, then don't do it. <laughs> like, we don't want to work with you. Like, that's not what we're selling here. When you're a young entrepreneur, though, it's a hard, hard thing to, to walk away from. Oh, somebody who has this job where I can make money. So, but as you grow, you'll kind of start pushing out the trash, like the things that distract you. But in the early days, hold on, because you're going to, you're going to be inundated with opportunities. And you got to figure out what works for you and what to push to a side. And that's 
one of those things. RPs for sure. They're exciting, but they're a waste of time. They're just bottom feeding customers, don't care about anything, cheapest price. They're never going to be happy. They're going to take your price, give it to somebody else and take their price and bring it back to you. It's not worth it. You've said a number of things that that lead me to believe you're just a sponge and you're just constantly looking to learn. What are some of the most impactful books that you've read? I mean, basic business books, uh, The E-Myth by Michael E. Gerber, I actually met him here. Traction, I think any young manager, young business owner, just like how to run a business, how to get out of your business, how to run business meetings. That's a good one. I had a, what's that? a conversation with the devil. But who is that? It's a very old book. I thought that was a very entertaining, good book. Have you know what, you know what book I'm talking about? I haven't read that one. The first two... I it's would. the devil. It's the, it's the negative person in your mind. And it's talking about how to overcome that negativity, doubt person. That was a really interesting book. It was from, I forget who it was. But I'll say the Michael e. Gerber and Traction, any young business on, I mean, most businesses are young businesses because most businesses fail in five years. I think those are two books you absolutely got to nail. And they're easy reads, they're short, and they're actionable things that you can do. And then there's tons, you know, how to win. Any young salesperson should read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I listen to it on audiobook every January. It's just basic, great fundamental advice on how to be likable, how to build relationships. And hey, and anybody listens, you don't need to be liked by everybody. You'll find where you're supposed to be. But there's just some basic things and just how to be a good salesperson, how to be a good manager. Yeah, I mean, there's tons. Like you should be listening all the time. You have to have like this, curiosity to learn, curiosity to hear someone else's point of view. And a hard thing too, is just because you heard it doesn't mean it's right. Like you got to be able to learn and dissect and put it against other things and then make up your own mind. A lot of people just read something they think it's true. That's not. So that's a mental muscle you have to develop. Man, you nailed that right there. Just because somebody puts it out in a book and just because that book is a bestseller does not mean it's right. And I'll show some naivety here. I can talk about how to make anybody a bestseller. I mean, it's so easy. <laughs> you just you pay for it. It's PR. So literally, you find a publisher, you pay them how much you're willing to pay, and you'll be a bestseller because they're going to put it on all their publishers. I mean, there's so many ways to manipulate that. So you have to develop that, again, mental muscle. It's critical thinking. Yeah, critical thinking, sure. Yeah. Well, was there anything that we haven't touched on that you hoped we would get into? I think... And anytime on a podcast, and if anybody's listened this far, number one, thank you. I appreciate it. But I want anybody who's listens to anything I have to say is that you can do it. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. When you're 85, you're not going to look back and say, man, I'm so happy I stayed at that safe job that didn't allow me to become the best version that I wanted to be. There's so much potential in you that you don't even realize that is out there that you need to go chase and find and become. And if there's a risk, take it. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? Oh, you're in debt. Okay. You'll figure it out. You'll get out of it. Like just do it. And I'm a football player who started a robotic software and industrial automation company that arguably is the largest provider of this in just six years. And it just came from nothing but tenacity and drive and not giving up. And I would say that's the only reason I was successful in football too. I just wanted it way more than anybody else. So if there's something you want, and you genuinely want it. And it's not for superficial reasons. It's not for money. It's not to impress your parents. It's not to impress your friends. It's in you. Like it's in me. I feel it. You'll feel it like crawling out of your skin. Like if you have that feeling where it's a drive, it's not an external reason. It's an internal fire. Go after it. And you don't have to quit your job today. I did simply note it on the side for a year, like 10 months before I went full time. So there's just be smart about it. Chase it. 
become the best version of yourself. You're going to look back five years and you won't regret it. You won't if you really go 110% into it because you're going to become, like I said, 45 minutes ago, I, I fit two 50-year corporate careers in the last five years of becoming an entrepreneur. And just go after it. Attack it. You'll love the person that you become five years down the road. I don't have the actual stats, but let's say it's 1% of high school athletes go on to play in college. And of those, it's probably 1% that go on to play at the pro level. And you did that again, forget what the exact stats are, but you know, so many businesses fail within the first couple of years and you have exceeded the odds and of the businesses that make it past that, the number of businesses that make it to $5 million in revenue is very, very small. You've accomplished a ton in your personal life and in your athletic life and in your business already. What's next? I heard this from a mentor. In the beginning, your dream is your dream. Like it's whatever you want for you. But as you are owning a business and your business is growing, you he told me this. He's like, make sure that your dream is big enough to take care of those people's dreams that are helping you build your dream. And it's figuring out how to take what I thought I wanted five years ago, which I mean, I'm there now, you know, I'm there now, but it's like, man, now I feel like I have a responsibility to take care of everybody's dream. And that's what leadership should do. Leadership should be taking care of their team, their employees, investing in them, making sure they're talking to them, asking what do they want and how can they help? I mean, it doesn't mean that you just give it to them, right? They have to earn it. You should help them become better so they can earn more money and, and do whatever they need to do to take care of their dreams. But yeah, I have kids now. So my vision is even bigger. Legacy, I want to do what you know, I said an hour ago, like my mom did what she did and got us here. And now I'm taking what my mom did and going somewhere else. And I want to make sure that I'm elevating the platform for them. So it just, it gets a lot more outside of those. Like I said earlier too, it's like in your twenties, it's ego. It's all these things that don't matter, right? Um, now it's more about the people and the relationships. So yeah, it's just make sure it's okay to get started thinking about yourself. But as you keep going, it's just make sure that you're taking care of the people that have helped you achieve what you are achieving. So just don't ever lose sight of that. And your business is going to grow and continue to grow. Rick, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. That was Rick Elmore, founder and CEO of Simply Noted. To learn more, visit simplynoted.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 